Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time together this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you'd move and stir our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and honored this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And it's the story of Zacchaeus that I've entitled this sermon, uh, The Power Converter. Uh, I've got a little power converter in my, in my uh, pocket here. And the purpose of this is to take one form of energy, of potential energy, and transform it and transfer it uh, to another source to where it is usable, where it can be expanded and used fully. And that's exactly what happens with Zacchaeus in this story. God transforms him. God takes him and he completely transforms him into a being, into a mechanism that will bring him glory. That's what God wants to do with all of us. Uh, You know, if I told you about an investment today that if you invested in, it would pay dividends the rest of your life. It would pay great dividends for the rest of your life. You'd say, I might be interested in knowing more about that. Well, I'll tell you, as we serve the kingdom of God, as we give toward the kingdom of God, we are investing for eternity. You ought to look at that like you look at your retirement here on earth. You would be foolish not to think about what's going to happen when I'm 70 or when I'm 80. You would want to think about that and invest and think about having a plan and preparing for that time. But even more foolish would be not to prepare for eternity. So today we're going to talk about how we can know Christ uh, for sure for eternity and the purpose of investing in his kingdom as we see the story of Zacchaeus. Now, virtually every religion in the world is a process religion. Now, what do I mean by that when I say a process religion? Well, it's like in Buddhism, there's the five-fold path. In Islam, there's the five pillars of Islam. There is a process you go through, and you work that process, and you try to master it. And hopefully at the end of that time, you will be found worthy before God. You will be deemed good enough. And so you just kind of hope that one day you'll get there. You hope you're doing well at the end. You hope somehow. You don't ever really know. But Christianity is different. Christianity goes like this. Jesus comes in and he saves. And you are prepared. And let me say this. You are transformed for life. And salvation is granted at that time. It's called conversion, all right? Now, there's a process in Christianity theologically, and it goes like this. When I'm converted, when I'm saved, when I accept Christ as my Savior, I'm saved from the penalty of sin. And then, after I'm saved from the penalty of sin, I'm still living here in this fallen and broken world. I'm still a sinner. But God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is saving me from the power of sin. And one day, I'll be saved from the presence of sin. So that's the process. But it all starts with what we call conversion. Now, that's not a term a lot of churches and a lot of people don't like to talk about that. They don't like to hear about conversion or salvation. As a matter of fact, a lot of people think, kind of think this way. They say, you know, conversion, salvation, getting saved, so to speak, that's for people. I can see people, if they were really having problems... They are just really, really falling off the wagon. They, they might need to get saved so they can kind of, you know, kind of get back on the wagon, so to speak. That, that, that's for people who are doing really bad. But the truth of it is, is that we all have to go through the experience of conversion. Matter of fact, here's what I found. 
I found in my, as a pastor, and this, I don't have any science on this, okay? This is just me. About 80 or 90% of the people who have a bad experience in life, and then they come and say, Jesus, I, I need you. I, Jesus, I, I, I'll get saved. Jesus, I'll follow you. And then the problem's over. About 90% of them just kind of fall back away. When things get good and things are all well and going well again, they go, I got, I got it. I got it, God. So if you're only being saved to get yourself out of a mess, your retention rate's not really good. The truth of it is, this is the way we all have to kind of come to salvation. First of all, we have to recognize this. We have to say, you know, God, I'm open. God, I'm open to you. I, I, I want you to move my life. I want you to, Lord, I'm, if we see Zacchaeus, he was seeking. I, I, I want you, God. Number two, you have to realize you have a need. A lot of people don't see a need. I, I've told you before about a friend of mine we were talking to one time and said, you know, I, I, I want Jesus in my life, but I don't really need him. I mean, I'm doing pretty good right now. Things are okay. I'm not that bad. You have to come to a place where you recognize there's a need in your life that you cannot save yourself, and only God Almighty through the person of Jesus Christ can do it. And then thirdly, we believe. We receive it. We receive it. First of all, I'm open. A lot of people just aren't open. I don't want to hear it. I'm not, not interested. Number two, you can be open, but you have to see there's a need. And number three, you receive it. You believe. That's the process of salvation. That's how we come to Christ that's what we call our conversion. You may not remember the exact second or moment that it happened, but we all have to come through the conversion experience. We all have to recognize our need for Christ Jesus. Now, before we read this section right here, there's one important theological theme that I think we all need to understand, and it's this, that virtually every Jew, everybody in the day of Jesus had this view of a Messiah of the Christ who would come, that he would rid the world, or at least the greater Jerusalem, Judea area, that he would get rid of evil, that he would get rid of the Roman Empire, he would get rid of those who had been unfaithful. He would come in, he would kick rear, and he'd take names. I mean, that's what they were expecting, that's what they wanted to happen, that was their mentality of a Savior, of a Messiah. And there are several scriptures that would, uh, they would use to <clears throat> make that point. Isaiah 4.4 4 says, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. They were waiting for judgment to come. It's payday time. We have suffered long enough. It's time for these people to pay. Malachi chapter 4, which is a precursor of John the Baptist. <clears throat> For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the e evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, and they shall leave them neither root nor branch. And then John the Baptist, who's preaching. And by the way, in Luke chapter 3 at this point, John is more popular than Jesus. He's been preaching hard. He's been preaching long. He's been preaching all over the area. And just floods of people are coming to hear John. And he's preaching this hard message of repentance. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 7 through 9, he says, Therefore to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, he goes, you brood of vipers, he's speaking to the religious order, through those who are coming and watching. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And they said, preach it. That's right. Throw them in the fire. That's right. We can't wait. Luke chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. This is the end of that sermon. They love this sermon. As long as it's not about me. As long as it's not about you, you love this sermon. All the people were in expectation and were questioning in their hearts concerning God. Maybe he's the Christ. This is what we've been looking for. This is the kind of message we've been waiting for. Maybe he's the Christ. And John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming that is mightier than I coming, and the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, there's going to be judgment coming. And he uses this illustration in verse 17. He says his winnowing fork. His winnowing fork, that was a a fork that they would use. It was an instrument they would use kind of almost like a pitchfork where they would throw the weed up in the air and the shaft would blow away. And it was a separation tool to separate the grain from the shaft. And so that's exactly what he's using right here. And he says here, my winnowing fork is in his hand. And to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat... And to the barn, the shaft will burn with unquenchable fire. That's right. They're going to burn. We're going to, the judgment's going to come on them. And they were excited about that message. You know what I mean? They were looking forward to it. And so here they are. And they're expecting Jesus. And they've been hearing about Jesus. And John said, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. And Jesus is popular right now. He's got a big following. He could easily run for president at this point and get elected. I mean, he is popular. And people are thinking, he's the Messiah. And we can't wait. And then we come to chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. And he entered into Jericho. Now, Jericho is an affluent area. It's a very nice area. It's a tropical climate. Matter of fact, uh, Cleopatra loved it so much, Mark Antony got it for her and gave it to her as a gift. There's a hippodrome there, which is the world's largest horse racing there. I mean, it's a place where people come. There are hundreds and hundreds of pools. It's just a beautiful area, great area to come to. And so very affluent area. So Jesus walks into this area, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Earl Lewis calls it the uh, rich politician. He said, that's what you ought to call this passage right here, the, the story of the rich politician. Chief tax collector. Only time we see that term used in Scripture. Chief tax collector. Now, we remember Matthew, who was a tax collector, but he wasn't a chief tax collector. Matter of fact, he was uh, kind of an underling. There were two different types of tax collectors. First, there were the tax collectors who, who uh, collected taxes for the state, for, the, for Governor Herod. He called himself king sometimes, but he was really a governor. And he would send people out to collect taxes for their state, for, their, for, you know, for what they needed. Matter of fact, you would be taking these taxes even if the Romans weren't there. But then there was the other Roman, there were the other tax collectors. And they were sometimes called publicans or chief publican. And what would happen, the Romans would say, okay, we're going to contract you out if you were a lucky individual, and most of the time you were a Roman. And they'd say, this is your area, this is your district. And this particular district was Jericho, and it was a great district. And then Romans might say, okay, we want a million dollars in taxes a year from this area. Now, anything else that you get is yours. And you have the authority and the power of the Roman government behind you. So you've already paid your state taxes, but now the Romans, and they would have house taxes, land taxes, agriculture taxes, uh, toll taxes. Matter of fact, the chief tax collector could decide whatever taxes because all Rome was interested in was getting their money. 
You give us money, and whatever you can get, and you get extra, good for you. So you come up with whatever you want. It's up to you. Matter of fact, uh, Zacchaeus, he's a Jew. And there's good reason to believe he became a Roman citizen, because typically the chief tax collectors were Romans. But whether he was or not, the Jews hated him. They hated him so much, they said, if you're a tax collector for the Roman Empire, you are designated unclean. Can't come to synagogue. Matter of fact, your family can't come to temple, can't come to synagogue. We just look at you and we just say, man, evil, sinful, you're out. So this is about as bad as you could be in society. And that's who Zacchaeus is. Very, very wealthy in a great area, but very hated by his own people. And the Bible says in verse 3, and he was seeking. We talked about how we come to Christ. First of all, we have to be open. Seeking to see who Jesus was. So he didn't know who Jesus is. He's heard stories about him, but he's seeking. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he does three things that you wouldn't do if you were a self-respecting Jewish man. And certainly if you were wealthy, you would not do it. Three things you didn't do if you were wealthy. You didn't run unless it was for battle. You don't run and you don't climb trees. And you certainly didn't get in a sycamore tree. Go back to chapter 7 of the book of Amos. Uh, Amos was a sycamore tree uh, he, he worked in Sycamore Tree, and he would get the, uh, they're, they're kind of these like, almost like persimmons. They're kind of like nasty figs is what they are. They weren't that good. You had to cut them, and you had to wait, and they were for the poor. And so if you were, if you were picking Sycamore, that means you didn't have anything. That was like, that'd be like us eating acorns almost. You know what I mean? It's, this was not a good food, but that's what he's in. So he's humbled himself by running, by getting into a tree, and by being in a Sycamore Tree. Because he knows Jesus is going to be passing that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus. I think at this moment, people are going, oh, he's going to get him. We hate Zacchaeus. I know if John the Baptist here, he would get, I wonder what Jesus is going to say to him. And they're just thinking, oh, calling him by name, which is interesting. Technically, Jesus calling him by name, that's a theophany. When God himself speaks directly to you like he did Moses, like he did Paul. But he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. What? I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down, the Bible says, and received him joyfully. I, I bet he was excited. I bet he was joyful. You know why? Because in that day and age, it was a lot more intimate. It had a much greater meaning to have someone come to your house, much less spend the night, to just come eat. You said, hey, I am in full relationship with this individual. My reputation is their reputation. Their reputation is my reputation. And he just invited possibly the worst sinner, the most evil person in their eyes that you could possibly imagine. And he's just invited him and said, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to come stay at your house. And then we see something happen that doesn't happen anywhere else in the Bible. And the Bible says, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. They all grumbled. Your translation, if you have King James, might say murmured. They all murmured. Now, we see that term frequently throughout the Scripture. But usually there's like a group. There's like a group, you know, in Moses' day that were grumbling. And there's a group over here in Jesus' day that here's the Pharisees and Pharisees. They're grumbling. Or maybe sometimes we hear the disciples grumble. But this is the only time we see where it says, everybody grumbled. Everybody murmured. Everybody's frustrated. Everybody's going, what in the world? They're all murmuring. Everybody is offended by this. Everybody is perplexed. And he has gone into the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
who's an outcast, who's unclean, who, can, who we don't even permit to walk into our churches. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, we see conversions happen to him. He willingly receives Christ, and he's joyful as he receives Christ because he realized what Jesus has just done for him. Jesus has just given his reputation, and in some eyes, Jesus has just come down. And he comes down so that Zacchaeus can come up. He decreases so that Zacchaeus can increase. In the Bible says, and Zacchaeus stood before him, and he's moved by this. He's stirred by this. He says, behold, the Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He says, half of everything I have, I give away. Remember, I think one of the reasons he's given to the poor because he couldn't give them the temple because he couldn't even go. And he says, half of it I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, I'll repay it 400%. Which was, uh, that was also a Jewish custom in Exodus 22. Also, it was uh, Roman law was the way he handled it. But he didn't have to do this. And I think one of the reasons he only gave half away because he knew if I'm going to give 400%, I got a lot of people. I mean, I've defrauded a lot of folks. I've taken advantage of a lot of people. It reminds me, though, in the chapter 4 in Luke chapter 18, remember there was a young man that came and said, Jesus, I'd like to follow him. And they called him the rich young ruler. He said, I'd like to follow him. He said, go give everything you have away and come follow me. And he went away sad. Here's Zacchaeus. He has a real conversion experience because he said, here's half, and then I'm going to use whatever else I have to to make it right. I'm going to pay 400% to all the people I'm defrauded. Don't you know, man, that was like Christmas Day for people. They go, 400%? Man, he messed me over for the last 10 years. <laughs> They're all showing up at this point. I mean, he's, he's given practically everything away at this point because he has experienced the grace and the free. He realized what it's cost Jesus, and no cost is too much to give back to him. You see true repentance here. And then we see the two most important verses in this text, maybe the two most important verses in this whole book. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come, not will come. It has come. Conversion has come. And he says this, he has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham, fully restored. Son of Abraham means you are a fully restored, a fully engaged, a fully blessed Jew. The favor of Yahweh was upon you. That word salvation is shalom. And we interpret a couple different ways, the absence of peace, uh, teleos, which means complete, but the primary way was salvation, soteria. When we talked about soteriology last week, salvation has come and you are fully engrafted. You are fully accepted by God Almighty. And then the key verse, verse 10. Remember what they wanted the Messiah to be? Remember what they wanted the Messiah to do? And Jesus said, this is why I've come. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Those who were lost. That's the purpose that I'm here. And if you really grasp that, and if you really receive that, then you'll say, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my all. I give you my time, my talents, my resources. Everything I have is yours. And I receive. Have you received the grace of God today? Have you been counting on a process that you're going to be good enough and you're going to do certain things? Or have you come to that place where you just recognize, I'm open, God. I have a need for you. I recognize that you're the Savior. I believe and I give you everything. Have you done that?